Morning, church. Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 17, please. If you get those ready, we're going to be looking at that uh, in just a few moments. If you're visiting today at Christ Church, uh, we're glad that you're here. My name's Mark. I'm one of the ministers, and uh, we're glad you're worshiping with us today. And we want you to feel free to join us in everything we're doing uh, as a part of your worship and encouragement of those around you. Uh, We are in this series called God Is. I want to remind you of something that happened two weeks ago at the end of the service. Elijah Daly, one of our worship ministers, was speaking uh, after the message on holiness, and he said that, you might remember it, he talked about his grandmother uh, who had been away from her husband for 50 years. He passed at a very young age, and he was a, a preacher. And so Elijah found some tapes of his sermons at Ozark Christian College and made a CD of those tapes and made it available for his grandma so that she could hear her husband's voice again. And then quoting, Elijah said, the purpose with this series we're in is that you may rediscover the voice of God, that you may, you may rediscover him, that in the midst of knowing he is sovereign, holy, magnificent, and beautiful, and that he is Lord, that in the moments of rediscovering his voice, the inflections, the tone, that it will change our lives. Because in rediscovering who God is every day, every morning, we'd rediscover who we are. I want you to remember that line. In rediscovering who God is every day, we rediscover who we are. One of the reasons that's important for us to study who God is and what he reveals to us is because it redefines who we are. When we understand his beauty, his holiness, and his perfection, it redefines me properly. People that, the the Bible says the fool says there is no God. And the person who spends no time understanding there is a God is foolish because they overestimate their intelligence, their wisdom, and their future. And there are many people who are good people who aren't going to end up in a good place at the end of their lives because they don't know who God is and they don't restructure who they are in light of him. Having said all of that, we've talked about the fact that God is knowable. He's revealed himself to us and it comes through his truth and his grace. When you understand his truth and you understand his grace, then you can understand how to live life well with him. We talked about the fact that God is holy. He's set apart for better things than this world offers us. And then last week... We talked about God is loving and that he pursues us. Even when we reject him and walk away, he is in full pursuit of us. Because when we rediscover who God is, we absolutely rediscover who we are. Uh, Today we're going to change our our focus in this series for one week from a characteristic of God to an action of God. We're not going to talk about what he is, we're going to talk about what he does. And by seeing what God does in this particular moment, we'll rediscover who we are and what we're to do. Uh, I want to talk to you about the life of the Apostle Paul. It's a name thrown around in churches quite a bit. We, we speak of him because he wrote almost a, a third of the Bible himself in his letters, his encouragements. But I want to tell you the story of Paul. Paul was an amazing man. He was a Pharisee, and you know about the Pharisees from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They were the religious group that made sure that the Jewish people were living properly under the law, that they were doing what they were supposed to. Now, Paul was exceptional at this. When you read the story of Paul, you'll understand that he was one of the best people who ever lived life in keeping the law. He lived his entire life to impress God with how much he was able to do. He would go on to say, of all the law keepers, I was the best. Paul's entire life was built on impressing God with how good he was in comparison to everybody else. And then this Jesus guy shows up. And Jesus starts inviting people that aren't good at the law and haven't even tried. 
He invites them to be a part of his kingdom. And Paul and the other Pharisees are infuriated by this because we've spent our entire lives being good. These people aren't good at all. And this, this teacher is inviting them into the kingdom of heaven. So the Pharisees got so outraged that they had Jesus killed. And Paul would not stop there. When you get to the book of Acts, you're going to see that Paul began to seek out, take captive, and even murder some Christians because how dare they take the law of God and turn it into this grace thing. And so Paul would go on a rampage. And he was not only one of the most brilliant Pharisees and law keepers, but he also was a murderer. And in the story of the book of Acts, in chapters 9, 17, and 22, Paul retells his conversion. And one day, on the road to Damascus, to go to the town of Damascus to capture some Christians and punish them, if not kill them, a bright light appears before him and drops him to his knees and blinds him. And a voice says to Paul, why are you persecuting me? And Paul says, who are you? And the voice responds, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And in that moment, on the road to Damascus, Paul realized that this Jesus that they said had been raised from the dead was alive. And when you get the resurrection of Jesus right, it will change who you are. And if you think you have the resurrection of Jesus down and it hasn't changed who you are, you don't understand the resurrection of Jesus. Paul cried out, who are you? He said, I am Jesus, the one that you have been persecuting. And for three days, Paul returned. He went to an upper room and he waited out and he thought about the resurrection of Jesus. He, he says later in chapter 22 that he thought all about what the scriptures had said and what he had been missing. And a man sent by God named Ananias shows up at Paul's house or where he's staying and he shares with him the complexity of who this Jesus is and the reality of what God is revealing about himself through Jesus and through the power of the resurrection. And Paul goes from being Saul, that was his name, the Pharisee, to being Paul, the champion of the church. And everything changes when we get the resurrection of Jesus right. And Paul would go on to, to tell us some amazing things about himself. But I want to take you to his understanding of God. And it's found many places, but let's focus on Acts chapter 17. We're going to begin in verse 16. And there's a moment where Paul has to reveal why he's different than he was before. Verse 16 of Acts 17. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens... He was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him, and some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. You see, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their days doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus, and he said, men of Athens, I see that in every way you are religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. Now what you worship is some, as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. I want to pause here because 
I have a little bit of a fear in our culture today that there is a retreat from living in our world as Christians and hiding out in caves and homes, making sure that none of the world ever creeps in. I love the fact that Paul looked at culture and he took what was going on in culture as a means by which to present Jesus. Let's not fear culture. Let's use culture to Christ's advantage. And he walks in and he sees this statue that says, to an unknown God. And seizing the moment, Paul says, can I introduce you to him? Because I know him, and his name's Jesus. And Paul, who would once persecute people for believing in the name of Jesus, puts his name on the line over it. He says in verse 24, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth, and he does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything, because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. In this passage, there are two key verses. Paul stands up and says, let me introduce you to this God that you don't know about. He is the creator and Lord of all things. And everything you have in life, he has given to you. But then he makes a distinction in verses 24 and 25 that's appropriate. He says, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. Verse 25. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. What Paul just did here was destroy his own argument. For every one of us who thinks that God will love us because we're better than most people, Paul destroys your argument. For those who say, I'm better now than I was five years ago, he's destroyed your argument. Because Paul's argument about God is this. God doesn't need anything from us. He is not incomplete without us. But God desires something from us. And there's a distinction between what God needs from us and what he desires from us. And Paul lays this before all of those who have lived their lives to obligate God to love them. I'm doing better. I'm trying harder. I'm giving more. I'm doing these things. And Paul says, God doesn't need that from you. He wants your heart, not your duty. He doesn't want you to earn his love. He wants you to receive his love. In fact, later in Paul's ministry, in Philippians chapter 3, Paul said, or wrote, whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. He said, all the things I did to earn God's favor, all the times I was good, all the laws I kept, all the little things I did each and every day, none of those mattered because I wasn't doing them because I loved God. I was doing them because I wanted him to give me what I earned. And Paul said, now I count that all as garbage and loss. It was all wasted because I now know Jesus. And it's good news to those who know 
that they need Jesus every moment of every day. John Piper says, God's message to the world is not a help wanted sign, it's a help available sign. And I love that Maggie can come out on this stage and encourage us with those $1 bills that we put in the offering plate each week and we think, what can $1 buy today? You can't even buy you a pack of gum anymore for crying out loud. But that $1 bill, when all of us give a dollar a week so that our right here, right now ministry, can, can you do hear what was said here today? That a homeless woman now has a place to stay? Church, is that good news? That's about, God doesn't need our $1, but he needs us to care about our neighbors. And those $1 bills are changing people's futures. Not because of us, but because God's love works. And for those who know that they can't make it without God, there's help available. And it comes in the form of Jesus. Paul hated Jesus because Jesus got in the way of Paul earning his way. Then Paul realized Jesus was the only way to be with the Father. And so it's good news to some, and it's bad news to others. Jesus cleared the air in Mark chapter 10, and also it's found in Matthew chapter 28. But in Mark 10, Jesus said, Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. There are two uh, key verbs in that statement of Jesus, to give and to serve. He said, I did not come for you to serve me. I came to serve you. You see, Jesus came because we needed him to. And the difference between believers and unbelievers, I think, is founded on that one statement. If you think that Jesus came to prove or teach or do these great things to, to make up the church and to make people be better people, you've misunderstood. Jesus came because I needed him to. And he came when I didn't know I needed him to. And the humility of that statement for every one of us is our profession of faith. Do I believe that Jesus came because I had no other way to be saved unless he did? And I believe that to be true. Jesus came, and I needed him to come. And I'll accept what he's given. Because Christianity is founded for every one of us on receiving Jesus Christ as he is and not trying to convert him into something useful for us, but to take every bit of him, his lordship, his salvation, his truth, and his holiness, to receive all of it. So I want to ask you two simple questions this morning. What then is the Christian life if what Paul discovered is true? It's a reaction to his action. The Christian life is a response to God's response. It's my reaction to what he did. He brought Jesus to me, and Jesus said, I did not come to be served by you, Mark. I came to serve you and to give my life as a ransom for you. And how will I then respond to that truth? You see, Paul was once trying to obligate God, but after meeting Jesus, he felt an obligation to God, not from God. He felt a need to serve. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 13, Paul would tell the church of Galatia, you, my brothers, were were called to be free. This is what Jesus did for us. But do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature, but rather serve one another in love. One of the things as a dad that I've never understood, and I hope I wasn't this way as a kid, but since my boys are a lot like me, I'm assuming I was. Have you ever tried to give your children something you enjoy and have them reject it without even trying it? 
Mine's always food. I'll always find this wonderful food I love, and I want my boys to love that food, not because I love it, because I know they will. They're me. So I'm like, you'll love this. And I'll take a little piece of it and put it on their fork and hand it to them, and they look at me and they go, I don't like it. You've never had it. You don't know you like it. I won't like it. Now that's a different thing. I, I don't and I won't. I get that. But so instead of me going, but I want you to enjoy this, it'll taste good. I know you'll love it. It's good for you. It's a wonderful gift. I thank God for food every day. And he's given us this. Enjoy it. And they're like, no, I won't like it. And then I ground them. I don't understand. I, I'm not a good father, but I'm like, you're sacrilegious. You're banished. Go to your room. You know? Deny what I say is good. How dare you? Isn't God trying to get us to taste what's really good? And what's our response? I won't like it. I don't want to do that. You see, the, the experience of Christianity, the reaction to God's action is to receive what he says will be good for us instead of chewing it around for an hour and when he looks away, spitting it out. Or setting our feet firmly and saying, I don't want to do that because I won't like it. And God says, you've never experienced it. You see, God has created us for something that this world can never give us. But so many of us are full with what the world's given us that we don't experience what God wants us to have. You see, when God calls us to serve, when God calls us to respond to his love by being loving, respond to his forgiveness by being forgiving, respond to his truth by being truthful, he's not punishing us for our past sin. Serving God is not being sent out to the garden to pull weeds because you mouthed off to mom. Serving God is what will make your tail wag for the rest of your life. It's what you're wired to do. But the world says, no, no, I'm going to keep you busy with entertainment. And God says, no, I've called you to serve, and you're going to find that serving, now listen to me carefully, is the greatest, most lasting entertainment. Is to do the joy of the Lord each and every day. That's why Paul said, don't indulge your sinful nature, but rather serve one another. So the second question I want to ask this morning is, what is then the evidence of the Christian life? As witnessed by Jesus and Paul, it's to serve as we've been served. You see, our, our action today is that God is serving us. See if you can complete this famous passage from the Gospels. The rain falls on the just and the... God is serving even those rejecting him. If you were here last week, God pursues gomers. And if you weren't here, you might want to listen to that sermon or that made no sense. But God loves and serves those who reject him because he's showing us his character and his goodness. In Isaiah chapter 64, the prophet says, Since ancient times, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God beside you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. That word waiting on God is found predominantly in the Old Testament prophets. It's an interesting expression. In Isaiah chapter 40 is the most prominent use of it. And this is one of those passages that many Christians know, even if you've never read Isaiah, I bet you you know sections of Isaiah 53 and 66 from Easter. And Isaiah chapter 40 verse 31 from every Christian bookstore in the world. Because when you walk in there, there are plaques and pictures and bumper stickers and t-shirts and... Here's what the verse says. Those who wait for the Lord, there's our phrase, will renew their strength. 
They will mount up with, uh, excuse me, they will mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. And people listen to that verse and they go, that's what I want. I need to know that when I'm doing what God's calling me to do, that, I, that he will give me the strength to survive. But there's a simple interpretive rule that we have to keep in place. You can't have Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31, if you don't have Isaiah chapter 40, 1 through 30. You can't. You can't live on the Bible by pulling out one verse and championing that verse if you don't understand who it was said to, why it was said, and when it was said. When we read the 40th chapter of Isaiah, the nation of Israel had been punished by God for their disobedience, and they had been taken captive. And Isaiah said that they will ask this question, where is God? We believed in a God who's dead or weak and has abandoned us. And every one of us has had a moment in our life as a believer in Jesus when God has not swept in and saved the day and our day was ruined. I just spoke to someone a few moments ago who we have been praying with about a situation going on. And I said, how are things? Yeah, I hate that. I want the answer to be, everything's great, but it's not, is it? And Isaiah 40, verse 31, is for those who wait on the Lord. Listen to the entirety of that thought from verses 28 through 31. Have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. To him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exalted or exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not grow faint. Whether you're a believer or not, the Lord is giving you strength to sustain you. When life knocks you down, only God stands you up. So that verse is awesome. But all 31 verses of Isaiah 40 are important to understand how awesome that is. And if you sit here today wondering, where is this God who serves me, preacher? I'm telling you that the reason you have not fallen into a puddle of your own demise is because God has sustained you. The God that you may wonder where he is, he's alive and doing quite well, thank you. And he always will be. He is everlasting. He's true. We need to wait on the Lord. The word wait doesn't mean how we use it here in America. In America, to wait on someone means to have a seat, chill out until they're ready to go. If you ever waited on a date, you just wait. If you ever waited to come to church on time, many of you are still waiting. It means do nothing, hang out until it's time to act. The word wait in the Hebrew has, if you'll allow the pun, a greater weight to it. The weight to it is this. It means to keep doing what you are doing until God calls you to do something differently. It's an action. It's not a do-nothing word. It's a respond to the opportunities in front of you until God brings you new opportunities. Those who grow faint and get tired and grow weary, they will continue to wait on the Lord by serving God and he will hold them up and one day they will feel like they have flown on the wings of eagles because that's who our God is. Elijah said it two weeks ago and I want to quote him one more time. In rediscovering who God is every day, 
Every morning, we rediscover who we are. So when life is hard, and it is, when you feel tired and weary, you are. But it's not by your strength that you serve the one who serves you. It's by his strength. Listen to Colossians chapter 1. The same Paul would, would say these words to that church. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. Our strength to serve, as we've been served, comes from the God who serves us while we were yet enemies. Strengthened with all might according to his power. It's our God who gives power to the faint, the weak, and the tired. It's our God who, when we're struggling and hurting, stands up and says, I will lift you up. I will hold you up. Jesus said, and lo, I will be with you always, even until the end of all time. Jesus said, I'm never going to be too tired for you. I'm never going to be too disinterested or distracted. I'm going to lift you up. But you need, I need to transition from the way Paul did by living my life to obligate God and instead become a life obligated to God because of what he's already done. We will never be able to obey God in our own strength. That's why each and every day we put our feet on the floor and we ask God, give me the courage, the faith, and the strength today to be yours. Every day it's a choice. Every day it's a battle. Isaiah 40 is a chapter I'd encourage you to read in the context of a nation wondering what had happened to the God who promised so much. I want you to know today God is serving you. And the early church understood when Jesus said, I did not come to be served, and Paul cried out in his sermons that God needs nothing from us, but he desires everything from us. God is not incomplete if I don't serve him. I am. And so are you. God is not incomplete if I don't serve him, but I am. Peter said this to the early church. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10. Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. So I ask you a question this morning, and I, I'd like an answer if it's okay. Has God served you well? Has God provided for you what you don't deserve? Has God got you through tough times by his strength, so there were moments where your feet couldn't touch the ground, but you were moving anyway. Have you ever felt like just laying there because life was so hard and yet something, some hope, some belief, some encouragement from another, another brother or sister in Christ got you up and moving? Have you been there? Then God has served you well. The question this morning is, will we serve him well? Will we respond to his action with the right reaction. Let's stand together and sing. Kenny Bowles, a professor at Ozark Christian College, was quoted in a paper that I graded this week by one of his students as saying these words. If you go to a church and you ask anyone in that congregation what their ministry is, and they say they don't have a ministry, the leadership of that church has failed. What is a ministry? It's not... It's not a position in a church. I introduce myself. I'm one of the ministers here. The word minister means servant. I'm here to serve, and we all are. 
And it's not about being on a church team, it's about being the church. And Kenny Bowles is right. If, if we as receivers of Jesus aren't living the life that he led for us, came not to be served, but to serve, then we really aren't a part of the Lord Jesus Christ church. We're part of a group that meets on Sundays to feel better about themselves. And that won't last at all. So there's no shame in this room, but let it be clearly understood. To be a part of the Lord Jesus Christ church, you gotta serve somebody. And sometimes it's convenient. Sometimes it's in ministries like this around the building. Many of you walked in here today and there were people that greeted you at the door and there were people that helped you find a parking spot. and There were people that had printed out materials for you and for your children and greeted you and showed you where your children can be taught. And Sometimes it's convenient because you're going to be here anyway. Sometimes service is inconvenient. There are people that come into this building at 6.30 on Sunday mornings and they stay until 1 o'clock so that you and I can come and go as we choose. Some sacrifice outside of this building. Please don't ever believe that what you do simply on Sunday morning is what God's asked of you. He, he wants us to serve Monday through forever. And it's serving your home, your spouse, your kids, your neighbors. I, I love the fact that you can find a neighbor in need and if you can't meet that need, you can talk to other Christians and we can help you meet that need because we are here to meet the needs of people. Some they're aware of and some they aren't. But let it be crystal clear here today. Jesus gave us the example as led by his father that God does not need us to serve, but he desires that we would because it's a taste of the one thing that we've rejected that really will make us the most satisfied. See, when you leave this room, if you go back out into the foyer, there's, there's some people there that could use your help. Opportunities for you to serve you can pick up a card that shows you what it is. There's an amazing list of things here that are convenient and inconvenient. Some of you will look at that and say, I would love to do that, and you're going to be serving in your sweet spot. And others of you are going to look at this and go, oh, I would hate to do that. Try it. Maybe it won't taste as bad as you thought it would. Maybe it might that one thing that you went, huh, broccoli's not poison. Cauliflower is. Cauliflower is. Okay. <laughs> But some of you, it's not going to a table and volunteering. Because volunteering is tough in our, in our culture today because we're busy. But you choose what you're busy with. And Jesus chose to not be busy in heaven to come down to earth to be busy for me. And so I want to follow my, my master's example. And so we want to encourage you here this day that I don't, I'm not smart enough to know what you're supposed to serve in, but I know what I'm supposed to serve in. And my act of worship today is to sing, because he lives, I'm going to live like him. I'm going to be Jesus to the best of my ability, and he's going to lift me up so I don't grow tired and faint. And that's what my God promises. He's serving us. So how about we serve him? And this morning, if this is your first Sunday here, we encourage you to, to go to one of the tables by the windows and take a, a post-it note and write down what God is to you and make those prayer walls deeper and richer. And some of you have done it every week. Do it another. Testify here today for all to see. One of my favorite things each week is to walk by and read what you find God to be. It encourages my heart. Church, has our God served us well? Then let's leave here today and serve him well. You are dismissed.